You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. We have children to teach, and we have sick to be cured, and we have men to be freed. There are poor to be lifted up, and there are cities to be built, and there's a world to be helped. Yet, we do what we must. I am hopeful, and I will try with best I can with everything I've got to end this battle and to return our sons to their desires. Yet, as long as others will challenge America's security and test the dearness of our beliefs with fire and steel, then we must stand or see the promise of two centuries tremble. This is Randall Wallace, and we are now into 1966 and 1967 of the Vietnam War. But we want to take just a second and fast forward way into the future, to uh, the mid-1990s, when Robert McNamara, who had been the Secretary of Defense during the Johnson administration, wrote a book. And in this book, he made uh, his defense of, of his what he felt happened in Vietnam. He... Uh, basically says that they were wrong and that they had been using a, the, uh, I guess, the, the, the mindset of having been uh, veterans of World War II and applying the belief that you stop aggression uh, early and you don't let it fester because Adolf Hitler had been allowed to keep going and going and going, and that led to the cataclysm that was World War II. Uh, and, and there's some truth in that, uh, I would argue that you have to have some t- level of discernment in any situation. You can't apply a, a standard across the board sometimes because all, uh, one size doesn't fit all. But he did an interview with Ted Koppel on Nightline uh, that was interesting and worthy of looking at as he lays out what he believed were the positions and where they were right and where they were wrong. And I thought that it was probably a good thing to open this show uh, and let his viewpoint that he brought up much later uh, be listened to. When we come back, former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. This is ABC News Nightline, brought to you by... Uh, you were saying to me during the break, you don't want to respond to your question. Well, the, the, uh, the lead said uh, this is uh, an opportunity for McNamara to respond to his critics. That's not my purpose. Uh, I understand why they're critics, and I'm not uh, saying their criticism is without foundation. Uh, but this book was not written for my redemption. It was not written to respond to my critics. It was written to explain to the American people why the majority phrase the best and the brightest, why the best and the brightest, and, and my associates, 
were the best and the brightest, why we failed, what lessons we can draw from it, how our nation can avoid similar problems. That's the purpose of the book. That's what I'd like to talk about tonight. Well, and indeed we will talk about that. Uh, let me go back to the figure that I sketched of you in the introduction to Jeff Greenfield's piece. Yes. And I, I remember you Half well. Of it, in, I, in the, in right. the mid-60s, I yes. remember you well. Yes. You were a forbidding figure. I cannot imagine anyone lightly taking you on. Oh, they did. In let those days. Well, then, if I they, surrounded myself with the brightest people I could find brighter than I if I could find them and I did and were they telling you that they the sure was a mistake? Were. they surely were then why didn't you listen to well they what they were saying in a sense was this is a dilemma we face the possibility of World War three if we do not stop Soviet and Chinese aggression against the West and at the same time they were saying we don't know how to stop it and what we're engaged in may result in failure. Now, what do you do? Mr. McNamara, you... Now, please don't understand me. This is not a request for sympathy. It's not a suggestion that we were not responsible for what happened. We were. The question is, what was the problem? What are the lessons? How to prevent it in the future? I don't know how you prevent it in the future. And, and with Well, you, I have some and, suggestions. And with all due respect, Mr. McNamara, I suggest that maybe neither do you. Oh, because, because, if I may... You were filled with a sense of purpose at that time, which had very little to do with Vietnam. It had more to do, perhaps, with China, with the Soviet Union, with the perceived threat of communism. And those who did know, and there weren't very many of them, but those who did know a little bit about Vietnam, and I do refer to people like David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan and Malcolm Brown, who were three of the final reporters who did some of the early, very critical reporting in 1963 and 64. Why didn't you listen to them? Why didn't you pay attention to what they were writing? Some of them were right. This, it's, it's interesting you raise that. This was an uncensored war. The first time in, in our history, I think, that it we was, went to war with uncensored. It was an undeclared war. Well, it was undeclared. It had to be it, uncensored it, because, because okay. it wasn't declared. Well, we could have introduced censorship. We did. But you're absolutely right on the undeclared, and that was a serious error. We should come to that. But it was uncensored. And by the way, one of those people you mentioned, and I won't name it by name, the three you mentioned, wrote in 1965, we should neither move toward neutralism nor get out. Now, the point I'm making is the majority of the American people, the majority of the American media, the majority of the Congress was in favor of it. That doesn't absolve we, the leaders, from blame. The purpose of leaders in this society is to lead, not to follow. And you did. You led. We led, you, but you led us right into an escalation of the war. You're absolutely right. And, and when you say the purpose of your book and the purpose of your appearance here tonight is not to respond to your criticism, I must respect that. But I must also point out, Mr. McNamara, that there are young men and women out there uh, who were crippled for life. Absolutely. There were 58,000 people dead. Who's dead whose survivors would say to you, and I must ask this question in their behalf, Yes, it is good that you've written this book. It is better that you wrote it than that you didn't write it. But was not the moral obligation upon you in the mid-60s, when you first felt these great doubts, 
to speak publicly and to say whatever my loyalty needs to be to the President of the United States, I have a greater loyalty not to see this country dragged into a land war in Asia that I know to be a mistake. No, let me correct you for a moment. In the mid-60s, I didn't say I knew it was a mistake. What I said was, I don't believe there's a military solution. Now, no, but let me go back just a Distinction second. Distinction without let, a difference no, 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 when no. it comes to the no, deaths no, no, of no, all no. those young no, men. No, no, no. Let me go back for a second. Uh, a person uh, from a national uh, magazine interviewed me today. And, and finally, in a sense, he raised his point. And finally, I said to him, how old are you? He said, I'm 42. And I said, I understand your point of view. I respect your point of view. But let me suggest something to you. The people who made the decisions, me, and we were responsible, and we failed. I want to begin with that. But let me tell you something. Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, John Kennedy, the President of the United States, I, the Secretary of Defense, many of our associates, we had fought in World War II, three or four or five years service. And we believed at the end that millions of Allied troops, including Millions of Americans died because we, we, the nation, we, the West, failed to respond to Hitler's threats early enough. And if we had responded early, we wouldn't have lost those lives. Now, the counterpart is that after World War II, the Soviets took over Eastern Europe. They sought to subvert the established governments in France and Italy. In my day, in my seven years in defense, in August of 61, they sought to take Berlin. Oh, I understand. No, no, I but, understand no, but the rationale, Mr. Oh, Mr. McNamara, oh. and, and we're going to have to take a break, which is one All reason right. why I'm interrupting. Right, go ahead. I understand the rationale, but what I don't understand, and I'm going to pose the question to you again after the break, is why you felt, when you realized it was a mistake, that you should not speak up there. If you'll post but, it again, give me time, I'll answer that. We'll be back in just a moment. About, but the question that so many people still do not understand is, if we're talking about moral obligation to the nation, to the country as a whole, particularly, though, to the young men and women who had to go over to Vietnam, you might not have achieved much, but at least from a moral point of view, you would have taken a stand if you had said something 25 years ago. Why the, didn't you? The first moral obligation is to protect this nation senior leaders, because of their experience in World War II, because of what happened after World War II, because in August of 61, the Soviets sought to take Berlin. In October of 62, they introduced nuclear missiles into Cuba. In June of 67, they backed Egypt and Syria to destroy Israel. China, during this entire time, was saying the U.S. was a paper tiger. Wars of liberation, of which they said Vietnam was one, were their means of extending their control over all of Asia. And you're saying Vietnam was not a mistake. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that we believed wrongly. We exaggerated that danger, I think. But in any event, we believed wrongly that we were preventing World War III. Now, that sounds absurd to you. Read a memorandum, I quote it in my book, that Dean Rusk wrote to President Johnson. The Secretary of State wrote I, to President Johnson in, in July you, of 65 that said, you, unless you do what you're doing, we'll have World War III. That's what we believe. We I, take you, I take you at your word. But 
there came a point, as the lawyers like to say, there came a moment when you knew that those fears were exaggerated. No, or wrong. No, no, no. At some point or another, you no, came to realize that. No, no. That. What, what, Even I, if it was only the no, day before yesterday. No, no. We. I never came to the point where I, at least not before I left the government in February '68. I never came to the point where I thought the fears were wrong. I have since come to that point, but I did come to a point before I left the government where I believed the fears were justified, but I believed that our program would not accomplish our objective of preserving the independence what of are you Vietnam. saying that did you come to the conclusion that so many of the of the protesters of the war had reached that it could not be won by military means i did indeed but they and had why not, didn't you say that because, well i did say it to the president and i said it let the, me no let me, public. let me just say i said it to the senate committee the senate armed service committee in august of 1967 and after i finished an excruciating day of testimony senator thurman said to me Mr. Secretary, you are a communist appeaser. You are proposing a no-win policy. And was he right or were you right? We were both right. I wasn't a communist appeaser. But what I was saying to him was, Senator, you can't win the war militarily. We must move to negotiation. And we must change, by implication, we must change our political objectives. We cannot preserve an independent South Vietnam. So what do you say, and, and try if you will, to put it into terms that are meaningful to the families of all those who died in Vietnam, who perhaps have taken some small solace all these years believing that their sons and fathers and brothers died for a purpose. They did. They died for the purpose of preserving the West against what appeared to be, and I think, as I suggest, we exaggerated, but it was a very real communist threat, and I've outlined the evidence of that that occurred during the seven years. If it was a real threat, Mr. McNamara, then should we not have done everything militarily possible to win it? Well, and if we came to the conclusion that it was not a real threat, couldn't we have pulled out before 58,000 Americans died? We did do everything militarily possible to win it, and I urge you to read what General Westmoreland said at a seminar at the Johnson Library in 1990. He said, I believed we, the military, had one arm tied behind our backs. This is a rather common view today. You, you still but, he, but he said, I now understand what the president was trying to do was prevent a war with China and the Soviets, which the chiefs had said, if that occurs, we'll have to use nuclear weapons, and who knows what would happen then. And so Westmoreland said, we at least achieved that objective, and he's absolutely correct. Do you believe that we can ever learn from the lessons of the past because in a sense what you have told me on this program tonight is you were con so concerned about what had happened during the second world war and how the second world war evolved that you applied yeah. the lessons of the second world war in the place where they should not erroneously you're yes. absolutely right now i think and i hope in this book i have correctly diagnosed the errors our errors the errors are the best and the brightest That's in Vietnam. Right. In right. Vietnam. But I can, hope I'm right. But can you apply those to Bosnia or Somalia right. or Haiti? You're damn right. Now, I don't suggest I'm the only person whose views should be heard on the on the errors in Vietnam, the lessons that can be applied to today. We should talk to historians. I wrote this book, to be absolutely frank with you, for in a sense for history. I want the conclusions debated. I believe I've drawn some lessons. I'll just give you two or three. We got 30 seconds. All right. Number one, 
we have consistently underestimated the power of nationalism. We were in, uh, some of us Americans, including many in the Congress, some in the executive branch, wanted to involve the U.S. in Bosnia, wanted the West to be involved in Bosnia after Bosnia had erupted. That would have been a disaster. You cannot confront the powers of nationalism with external military force after the state has begun to dissolve. You can't do it successfully. We should have learned that in Vietnam. One more time. To the critics, do you have anything to say? Read the book. Think. Engage in constructive debate about lessons. Mr. McNamara, I thank you. I appreciate you coming in. Thank you, indeed. I'll be back in a moment. Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. solemn declarations. Some citizens of South Vietnam, at times with understandable grievances, have joined in the attack on their own government. But we must not let this mask the central fact that this is really war. It is guided by North Vietnam, and it is spurred by Communist China. Its goal is to conquer the South to defeat American power and to extend the Asiatic dominion of communism. And there are great stakes in the balance. 
most of the non-communist nations of Asia cannot by themselves and alone resist the growing might and the grasping ambition of Asian communism. Our power, therefore, is a very vital shield. If we are driven from the field in Vietnam, then no nation can ever again have the same confidence in American promise or in American protection. In each land, the forces of independence would be considerably weakened. And an Asia so threatened by communist domination would certainly imperil the security of the United States itself of history. Moreover, we are in Vietnam to fulfill one of the most solemn pledges of the American nation. Three presidents, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and your present president, over 11 years have committed themselves and have promised to help defend this small and valiant nation. Strengthened by that promise, the people of South Vietnam have fought for many long years. Thousands of them have died. Thousands more have been crippled and scarred by war. And we just cannot now dishonor our word or abandon our commitment or leave those who believed us and who trusted us to the terror and repression and murder that would follow. This then, my fellow Americans, is why we're in Vietnam. What are our goals in that war-stained land? First, we intend to convince the Communists that we cannot be defeated by force of arms or by superior power. They are not easily convinced. In recent months, they have greatly increased their fighting forces and their attacks and the numbers of incidents. I have asked the commanding general, General Westmoreland, what more he needs. I keep going back to the Gulf of Tonkin because it is such a murky thing and there was never really a straight story to it. And the reason that I do and is because now we're getting in past 65 into 66 and Congress is starting to ask questions and they're not getting straight answers. And you see a Congress, a United States Senator named Wayne Morse from Oregon here. He is going after ambassador Maxwell Taylor, who is a former general, a general who you have heard say he had, uh, did not want to see us put uh, troops on the ground there, but he did believe in retaliatory strikes and making moves against the North Vietnamese. But what you see is the beginnings of what will haunt the Johnson administration right to the end, the credibility gap, where you know Johnson would have these press conferences and, and present a, an image of that we're winning in the war, that we're doing better in the war, and here's what's happening. And, or, or it, it just wouldn't fa it wouldn't match with reality a lot of the time, 
And uh, as I heard Nicholas Katzenbach once say in one documentary, Johnson had this way of uh, making things come around the way he thought it should be uh, at a capacity more than anybody else. But either way, this becomes a credibility gap, and you start to see it at the hearings uh, that Senator Fulbright has and that Senator Morse here is asking questions. General Taylor was, had been very much involved in American Vietnam policy from the beginning. Uh, President Kennedy had sent Taylor to Vietnam in 1961 to look at the situation. And Taylor had said it was a dire situation, that he didn't believe the South Vietnamese could, uh, government could defend itself, that Americans would have to get involved. He saw Americans sending more um, uh, naval support and more air support. General Taylor did not, however, as an army general, did not believe that U.S. combat troops should ever be sent to Vietnam. He was totally opposed to that. But General Taylor was a loyal soldier, uh, and he supports, in his testimony, he supports what the uh, Johnson administration is doing. He gives some rationales for it. But we now know, because his telegrams are now public record, and even his telephone conversations with the president are public record, uh, we know that he had great reservations about sending ground troops, that he believed that the United States should draw the line and only send naval support and air support. Well, now uh, we're engaged in a historic debate in this country. Our, we have honest differences of opinion. I happen to hold to the point of view that it isn't going to be too long before the American people, as a people, will repudiate our war in Southeast Asia. That, of course, and, is good news to Hanoi, Senator. Uh, oh, I, uh, I know that that's the smear artist that you militarists give to those of us that have honest differences of opinion with you, but I don't intend to get down in the gutter with you and uh, engage in that kind of debate, General. I'm simply saying that, in my judgment, the President of the United States is already losing the people of this country by the millions in connection with his war in Southeast Asia. And all I'm asking is, if the people decide that this war should be stopped in Southeast Asia, are you going to take the position that's weakness on the home front in a democracy? I would feel that our people were badly misguided and did not understand the consequences of such a disaster. Well, uh, we agree on one thing, that they can be badly misguided, and you and the President, in my judgment, have been misguiding them for a long time in this war. Now, I take you... It is a violation of our rules for you to demonstrate in, the, in these hearings. Your guests of the committee, and you would please remain silent. As the war continues to escalate, continues to go on, again, President Johnson turns for advice to former President Eisenhower. Eisenhower, at this point, has called because of something he said making the news. But he, he gives Johnson some advice. Hello? Thank you are. Well, I'm pretty good. I'm not getting my strength back very well. Oh, I'm sorry. I, well, I, I met with Everett Dirksen a while ago, and he told me he was sitting next to you this morning. He just enjoyed it and uh, told me we had a nice little meeting. Well, as long as I'm sitting down, you know, and uh, working on a desk, I have no trouble. But it's uh, any um, unusual or quick uh, action, and I feel a little bit. So you're on color television, though, and you just look wonderful, just like you're coming back from the war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell you, Mr. President, I didn't want to bother you too much, but uh, I just wanted to make sure there was no misunderstanding. I noticed that a senator the other day questioned why I didn't... Uh, give you a detail that plan I had for Lick winning the war in Vietnam. And I 
ideas that what we should do or could do, I communicate them to you through the channel. And whatever I have to say about that may sound critical, it's merely that I want no, to win the no. damn war before I could go to the moon or anything else. General, you never, you, you, you just, you said what I think. And, uh, you told me this, you may have forgotten it, but the first visit you made to my office when I talked to you in Vietnam over in the old executive office building, you told me that you sent word to, through Dulles to Nehru that you were not going to be bound by any sanctuaries or any weapons that you were going to do what is best for your country and you want to bring it to an end. And you didn't get specific or anything. You just said, let that word get around. And Bob Anderson told me that he heard the same thing, and I think it was a proper thing. And they're trying to get you to say that you won't drop an atomic bomb on somebody. And we know that you you don't do anything uh, uh, that's not well thought out. They wanted me to say that I want to tell you publicly how to run this war, and I just think I won't do it. <laughs> well, I, I sure, if you, I, I, I need all the help I can get, so you... <laughs> I say, I'm, they, the president knows I'm always available. I know that. And I'm just not going to uh, be in the position of dividing the United States at a time when it needs unity. I know that. You, that you, you've always shown that. And I told uh, Everett Dirksen this morning, he said he made a little statement this morning, said we got one blood out there and one flag and one uniform. And I said, well, I've been paid a thousand percent. I said, Everett, do you remember when I used to have to stand up and Bill Nolan go in the back row and attack the president? I'd stand up and do it. He said, you sure did. I said, well, I've been paid a hundred percent dividends for three years now. Okay, well, I just wanted you, Mr. President, to know that all this damn stuff is just annoying to me. Well, don't let it, please don't let it do it, because I, I know how you feel and what you think, and if I ever get annoyed by anything, you'll be the first one I talk to, and I never have been, but you've never done anything but help me, sir. Okay, thank you my, very much. My love, Ms. Eisner. Okay, thank you. In October of 1966, Ferdinand Marcos, the... Uh, president of the Philippines, whose wife, Imelda Marcos, had all the shoes, if you remember correctly, and, and who would fall from power in the 1980s, much later. Uh, but at this point, he's got uh, some interest in what's going on in Vietnam, and he calls together a meeting of, of several of the nations who have got troops helping the United States in Vietnam, and President Johnson goes there to meet with them as they're going to come up with some strategies here at the end of 1967. President Johnson has received the invitation of President Marcos of the Philippines, extended in consultation with the President of Korea and the Prime Minister of Thailand, for a conference of the chiefs of state or government of the Asian nations which are contributing military forces to assist South Vietnam in the struggle against aggression and which are together looking for an honorable peace. President Johnson is glad to agree to this invitation. He will be pleased to join the meeting of other chiefs of state or government who are participating in the Vietnamese effort. From the White House, Presidential Press Secretary Bill Moyers announces U.S. participation in a seven-nation summit conference on Vietnam, which will take chiefs of state to Manila. This beautiful city in the Philippines will play host to America's Asian allies. This nation, along with South Vietnam, South Korea, Thailand, Australia, and New Zealand, all have troops fighting beside U.S. soldiers against the Viet Cong.
President Marcos, who proposed the meeting, officiates at ceremonies which send the advance units of an eventual 2,000-man force to Vietnam. Most of the officers are veterans of the Korean War. These troops fill engineering, security, health, and other non-combatant roles. South Korea's famous rock troops are a part of a 39,000-man force from this nation supporting U.S. military action in Vietnam. They've also sent a fully staffed mobile hospital. The United States has 311,000 combat troops now battling the Viet Cong. The Manila Conference will review the prospects of negotiations leading to a peaceful settlement of the conflict. The conference announcement follows closely on the heels of peace proposals by Arthur Goldberg in the United Nations. South Vietnamese troops number 707,000 in the struggle against the North. Social, economic, and political problems of the region will also be discussed by the conference. Australian soldiers total close to 5,000 as their contribution in the battle. Thus, the seven-nation Manila Conference will be of vital concern, not only to the more than one million men under arms in Vietnam, but to an entire world anxious for peace with honor. The dignitaries gathered early Sunday afternoon, Philippines time, at Manila International Airport to greet the greatest assemblage of world leaders to come to this part of the globe in many years. First to arrive, South Vietnam's Chief of State Nguyen Van Thu and Premier Key. Key survived the cabinet crisis a few days ago, persuading seven dissident ministers not to resign, at least until the Manila conference has ended. The president of South Korea, Park Chung-hee, next to receive the greetings of Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos. Marcos and his attractive wife visited Washington only weeks ago, and out of that meeting came President Johnson's decision to journey to Manila to participate in the summit conference. Mr. J the presidential plane, after a week of mixed reactions to his visit down under, the rain obligingly had stopped. Roving Ambassador Averill Harriman, Ambassador to South Vietnam Henry Cabot Lodge, and Secretary of State Rusk, had preceded the president of Manila. Authorities estimated that 500,000 persons lined the route of the motorcade from the airport to the Manila Hotel downtown. For the most part, it wasn't a wildly cheering crowd either. The presidential party stopped along the way at the monument to Jose Rizal, the famed Filipino patriot, the first to stir the islanders' nationalistic feelings in the late 1800s. The president and Mrs. Johnson moved on to the Manila Hotel, but by a back route, avoiding a crowd of hundreds, pressed against the iron fence in the front of the building. The suite the chief executive and the first lady are occupying is the same one used by the Beatles last summer. It has, however, been completely redone for the occasion. This is Charles Herring reporting. After this Manila conference, we continue to escalate the war. And by the beginning of 1967, we have 500,000 men stationed in Vietnam. In February, we send U.S. aircraft to bomb Haiphong Harbor and North Vietnamese airfields. Uh, and in April of 67, there are huge Vietnam War protests that break out in Washington, D.C., New York City, and San Francisco. It becomes quite chaotic. On top of the issues going on in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson now has to deal with a riot in Detroit, where he has to call on Governor Romney of Michigan. In the early morning today, 
Governor Romney communicated with Attorney General Ramsey Clark and told him of the extreme disorder in Detroit, Michigan. The Attorney General kept me advised throughout the morning. At 10.56 this morning, I received a wire from Governor Romney officially requesting that federal troops be dispatched to Michigan. This wire had been sent at 10.46 a.m. At 11.02 a.m. this morning, I instructed the Secretary of Defense, Mr. McNamara, to initiate the movement of the troops which the governor had requested. At the same time, I advised the governor by telegram that the troops would be sent to Selfridge Air Base just northeast of Detroit and would be available to support and to assist the some 8,000 Michigan National Guardsmen and the several thousand state and local police under the command of Governor Romney and the mayor of Detroit. I informed the governor that these troops would arrive this afternoon. I also informed the governor that immediately Mr. Cyrus Vance, as special assistant to the Secretary of Defense and others, would proceed to Detroit for conferences with the governor and other appropriate officials. This plan proceeded precisely as scheduled. Approximately 5,000 federal troops were on their way by airlift to Detroit, Michigan, within a few hours. Mr. Vance, General Throckmorton, and others were in Detroit and in conference with Governor Romney by the middle of this afternoon. Their initial report was that it then appeared that the situation might be controlled without bringing the federal troops from the Selfridge Air Force Base into downtown Detroit. They therefore recommended to the President that the troops be maintained on a 30-minute alert, and they advised that they would be in continual touch with the situation and with Secretary McNamara and me making uh, periodic reports about every 30 minutes. At approximately 10.30 this evening, Mr. Vance and General Throckmorton reported to me by telephone that it was the then unanimous opinion of all of the state and federal officials who were in consultation, including Governor Romney, Mr. Vance, General Throckmorton, the mayor, and others, that the situation had developed in such a way in the few intervening hours as to make the use of federal troops to augment the police and Michigan National Guard imperative. They described the situation in considerable detail, including the violence and deaths that had occurred in the past few hours, and submitted as their unanimous judgment of all concern that the situation was totally beyond the control of the local authorities. On the basis of this confirmation of the need for federal participation by federal troops and pursuant to the official request made by the governor of the state of Michigan, in which Mayor Kavanaugh of Detroit joined, I forthwith issued the necessary proclamation and executive order as provided by the Constitution and the statutes. I advised Mr. Vance and General Thalkmorton to proceed immediately with the transportation of the federal troops from Selfridge Air Force Base to places of deployment within Detroit, a movement which they had already provisionally begun pursuant to their authority. 
I'm sure that the American people will realize that I take this action with the greatest regret and only because of the clear, the unmistakable, and the undisputed evidence that Governor Romney of Michigan and the local officials in Detroit have been unable to bring the situation under control. Law enforcement is a local matter. It is the responsibility of local officials and the governors of the respective states. The federal government should not intervene except in the most extraordinary circumstances. The fact of the matter, however, is that law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. They are criminal conduct, and the federal government in the circumstances here presented had no alternative but to respond since it was called upon by the governor of the state and since it was presented with proof of his inability to restore order in Michigan. We will not tolerate lawlessness. We will not endure violence. It matters not by whom it is done or under what slogan or banner. It will not be tolerated. This nation will do whatever it is necessary to do to suppress and to punish those who engage in it. I know that with few exceptions, the people of Detroit and the people of Newark and the people of Harlem and of all of our American cities, however troubled they may be, deplore and condemn these criminal acts. I know that the vast majority of Negroes and whites are shocked and are outraged by them. So tonight, your President calls upon all of our people in all of our cities to join in a determined program to maintain law and order, to condemn and to combat lawlessness in all of its form, and firmly to show by word and by deed that riots, looting, and public disorder will just not be tolerated. In particular, I call upon the people of the ravaged areas to return to their homes, to leave the streets, and to permit the authorities to restore quiet and order without further loss of life or property damage. Once this is done, attention can immediately be turned to the great and the urgent problems of repairing the damage that has been done. I appeal to every American in this grave hour to respond to this plea. Turning back to Vietnam, LBJ had another problem, and that was that the North Vietnamese were looking at the watch. They were looking at the clock. They knew that if they could keep pushing this, into 67, into 68, they could get rid of Johnson and have a new president to deal with, and that president may try to would be willing, more willing to negotiate or walk away. 
We had a lot of turmoil going on in the streets of the United States. And that was their hope, uh, to, to, to force Johnson out um, and to keep the turmoil going, basically stalling, because the North Vietnamese knew something that America probably should know, and anybody who's invading another country should know since the dawn of time, and that is sooner or later they're going to go home. And that's what I think they were thinking. We have a lot to do yet. A great many mistakes have been made. We take two steps forward and we slip back one. It's not all uh, 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 perfect by any means. There are a good many days when we get a C- minus instead of an A+. Plus, but overall, we're making progress. We're satisfied with that progress. Our allies are pleased with that progress. And every country that I know in that area that is familiar with what's happening thinks it's absolutely essential that Uncle Sam keep her word and stay there until we can find an honorable peace. And uh, if they have any doubts about it, Mr. Ho Chi Minh, who reads our papers and who listens to our radio and looks at our television, if he has any doubts about it, I want to disillusion him this morning because we keep our commitments. Our people are going to support the men that are there, and the men there are going to bring us an honorable peace. Mr. Reynolds. Mr. President, Hanoi may be interpreting the current public opinion polls to indicate that you will be replaced next year. Now, how should this affect the campaign in this country? Well, I don't know how it will affect the campaign in this country. I think that whatever interpretation Hanoi might make that would lead them to believe that Uncle Sam, whoever may be president, is going to pull out, and it'll be easier for them to make an inside deal with another president than will be the president. They'll make a serious misjudgment. Earlier in April of 1967, uh, the South Vietnam had, had gotten and formed its own a new constitution, and now they were gearing up for a presidential election. Since Diem had been overthrown in November of 1963, it had been basically a turnstile, and you'll hear, you've heard advisors talk about that in the leadership of the South Vietnamese government. Uh, General Duong Van Minh came in behind Diem in November of '63, and he lasted 86 days. He was followed by General Nguyen Khan, and he lasted 260 days. I have to excuse my pronouncing of some of these names. Tran Van Huang, who, who came in behind him, lasted 84 days. Uh, Nguyen Xuan Quan, <laughs> and that may not be right, but he lasted 19 days. He didn't last long enough to learn the name. Uh, Von Hugh Quat was 112 days. And then finally, Generals Nguyen Kai Ki and Nguyen Van Thu, uh, they came in, and they lasted going into this election and, and that election would produce a victory for that to those two. Uh, and, and General Thu would become the president of South Vietnam um, with a 34.8% of the vote, which tells you how divided this country was. There was a lot of candidates running, but they, they got the majority of the vote. Um, but the good part of this was the communists had been saying that they controlled you know, a good chunk of the peasants and the and the people out in the countryside, 
But there was a high voter turnout, despite the fact that the, the communists had been trying to prevent that from happening. And it showed you that the people of Vietnam were interested in democracy and having a say. And that was really the big thing driving some of this, because there were two factors there um, to making this, getting this government stabilized. One was that the people had to buy in. Um, all the people of Vietnam, and that is mostly a peasant and rural society, and you'd had all of these things happening in this country, war-torn for so many years. They had to be buying in and want to be a part of it. The other thing was, on the other end, the South Vietnamese government knew they had to get a constitution set up, and they had to get people voting and get people uh, bought in, because the United States was only going to support a dictatorship for so long, and that's really basically what had devolved since DM had fallen was a series of generals trying to run and control the government and trying to prop it up and keep it going. So this election had been important, and uh, Lyndon Johnson here is going to be answering some questions about whether or not he'd be willing to share some uh, power after this election's over with the communists if they were to have gotten elected. Mr. President, uh, are we willing to accept communists in a coalition government, if the South Vietnamese government and the NFL got together to negotiate, are we willing to accept communists in a coalition government? I think that uh, the thing we must bear in mind that uh, what happens in South Vietnam is up to the people of South Vietnam, not to North Vietnam, not to China, or Soviet, or the United States, but the people of South Vietnam. We are prepared to have uh, every man in South Vietnam under their constitutional government, one man, one vote and for those people themselves to determine the kind of government they want. We think we know what that determination would be from the 70% that are registered, the 60% that have voted. And it's a matter for them to determine, not for me to determine. And uh, uh, I think that we might add one other thing here, that uh, uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Reynolds says, uh, what are the minimum conditions for this or that? Uh, We don't want to get sparring uh, with each other, but I can say that uh, so far as the United States is concerned, we're ready to stop fighting tonight, if they are ready to stop fighting. But we are not ready to stop our side of the war, only to encourage them to escalate their side of the war. But we will uh, reciprocate and meet any move that they make. But we're not going to be so soft-headed and pudding-headed as to say that we'll stop our half of the war and hope and pray that they stop there. Now, we have tried that in some instances. We've leaned over backwards. And every time we have, they have escalated their efforts and they have uh, killed our soldiers. And we've got no result from it. And the burnt child read the fire. But uh, if you want us to stop our bombing... Uh, you have to ask them to stop their bombing, stop their hand grenades, stop their mortar. At San Antonio, I laid out the formula, and I said, we will stop bombing immediately, provided you will have prompt and productive discussions. Now, that's about as far as anyone can go, and that's as far as anyone should go, and that's as far as we're going. As we get closer here to the end of 1967, Johnson again turns to a former president and general who knows uh, these kind of things. As you remember, General Eisenhower uh, came into office to to the presidency with the Korean War in full uh, mode. Eisenhower had to play some diplomatic games 
coming into Korea to get a deal that would stop that war to stalemate on the 38th parallel. Here, Lyndon Johnson and President Eisenhower talk in the, toward the end of 1967 about what Johnson's policy is and whether Eisenhower, what he thinks and what advice he could give. Operator. Yes, put him on. There you are. He's right Hello? Hello? Mr. President? Yes, sir. General, glad to hear you. Well, I tell you, I listened to your talk last night. I'm complimented. I uh, thought that it was a very fine exposition on what has been America's uh, purposes and intent. And, uh, and then I was quite uh, pleased to... Uh, to see that, that new idea of, uh, of uh, setting up a commission to study what could be done now. I, um, I would uh, suggest, uh, Mr. President, that uh, when that committee gets its uh, charter and directive, that it be uh, told to study ways of bringing the thinking of the South Vietnamese, the populace, in line with our uh, thinking and vice versa. That be a better, greater understanding and say a greater rapport. Do you see what I'm getting at? Sure do. I, I remember you uh, emphasized that when you were here, and I, I, uh, I, I think it has much merit. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Mr. President, we know this: no country can be saved by an outsider unless its own heart is in the right place. And unless until those people are educated. You see, now your talk to all the literate world will explain them and uh, explain uh, America's purposes and its intentions and its uh, unselfish attitude. But this poor little devil down there that's trying to make a living on an acre of ground or rice, why, he just doesn't know. And he's the fellow we're trying to get at now. And so I think these people, along as they, uh, as they're trying to figure out what the economic betterment could be brought about, why they also have to uh, take the uh, the mental side and the spiritual side of the human, and trying to uh, to uh, better him uh, the same way. Yes, I quite agree, and I think that the the, the two places that we have been very deficient. The one is in that respect, and the other is. Uh, uh, getting a government that we can, that uh, uh, formulating governments at the local level and at the uh, top level that uh, can see this thing through, and that's pretty difficult to do. And the after all these years, of course, their morale's bad. After you were here and talked to me, I uh, uh, I called in the best propaganda people we had, the best information people we had, the the most inspirational people we had, even a few spiritual ones, and uh, I sent them out and made the study and turned them over a lot more equipment and accelerated the effort and put them in charge of one man, brought in all the military people and all the USIA people, and uh, considerably strengthened the program, but I got to strengthen it a, a good deal more. But I was trying to reflect a little of that in my speech last night, and uh, I thought I'd kick it off at this level here and then uh, 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 get Gene Black in, that most people have confidence in as being a pretty practical fellow, but a progressive fellow. 
and see if he could take uh, our uh, resources and pull them together and then try to make the Asians uh, form a plan themselves uh, for other countries which we'd be delighted to participate. That's right. I, well, I agree thoroughly. I have no, uh, no criticism of that uh, plan idea whatsoever. The only thing I was uh, hoping... Now, for example, if we're going to get a, a solid government out there, it's got to be based on a rather, uh, I mean, satisfactory government to us. It's got to be based on the kind of um, conviction and belief, a uh, popular conviction and belief that we ourselves espouse, you see? Yes, yes. And uh, because we never can keep a government up there just with bayonets, it's got to be with the consent and the desire of those people. Right. That is the uh, problem that uh, I all I tell you, as I told you once, I used to get so uh, weary with this fellow Rooney because he, he would stand by us on um, foreign aid, let's say. But my gosh, when he came to USIA, he was, as always, cut to pieces. Now, it's, it's such a hard thing to sell politically that someone is thinking of nothing but getting reelected. Damn it, he's just, um, he's not much interested. But uh, we know, as uh, responsible people, that we're going to save a nation. We've got we to go after their minds and hearts as well as we do at their stomachs. And I think it's uh, that's the only that's the only thing I would uh, uh, suggest as an addition. Sir. Well, I uh, I uh, appreciate that suggestion. I'm in hearty agreement with it. Uh, I profited uh, uh, greatly from our meeting when you uh, were here last time, particularly in that respect. I uh, sent our best people out immediately. They. Uh, made substantial increases and I think some progress uh, in going after their minds and their hearts uh, and we will uh, we will concentrate on that. Uh, I don't think you could be more right than, than you are and uh, I, I appreciate so much uh, uh, your give me this chance to talk to you. Well, actually I just want really I just wanted to say that I thought it was a very fun, timely and fine move. I would delight to hear you do it. Well, Melvin has, uh, from time to time, asked me to the ways that he could help, and he, he uh, did uh, help me put this on. I had uh, indicated I might want to do it Monday, but I wanted time to uh, uh, have uh, General Goodpaster talk to you and talk to some other folks. and. Uh, Unfortunately, I had to go on Wednesday, and he had to be in Seattle, but he had a wonderful audience. It was well-received. It's uh, The world reaction has been very good. Of course, it's not good from China, and the communist countries uh, are not pleased with it. But the other countries have been very good, and I'm meeting now with uh, uh, Gene Black and uh, some of the departmental people in the cabinet room, and we are getting ready to make suggestions to Utah so that uh, quietly, so it doesn't look like the white men trying to run everything, and then get him to go out and see if those people can't evolve some program they own, which we will uh, uh, give some direction and uh, maybe a little substance. Well, I'll tell you, that, that, uh, that one remark you just made is a thing that I believe always. We can't do this just with white, with white nations. We ought to have an Asiatic association that just uh, 
a little bit bigger than Seco and uh, <coughs> probably a little bit different uh, charter, but with Japan and Formosa and South Korea and uh, Thailand and uh, Vietnam in there and Malay, it'll be uh, Philippines, be a, Malay, a fine thing, and then we could join with it along with it. Go on. Well, uh, I. I'll be pursuing it. I'll be back in touch with you. How long are you going to stay out there and uh, live like a king? Well, I'll tell you, actually, uh, Mr. President, I've been ill for almost three weeks, but I kept it pretty secret. Oh, well, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I... Okay, I'm going to leave here on the 27th, and I'll be home uh, on the morning of the 30th. Well, let's get together pretty soon after that. I'd like to. Fine. Thank you so much. Give my love, Ms. Eisenhower. Uh, is there anything, any reason why uh, uh, I shouldn't, uh, uh, am I at liberty to say that we talked about this? Oh, surely. And particularly tell uh, Gene Black that I'm delighted that he's ready to take up the tour. Uh, wait just a second. I would, uh, that will do him more good uh, than anything I could say if you, if you would just say that to him because, uh, uh, he's uh, tried to retire, you know, and he went down to Florida, and he hadn't been too well, but he's all right now, and I just called him and told him he had to come in and help me. And uh, you don't know how many people in this country, uh, how they feel about you, General. Uh, uh, you just mean a lot to all of us, and I know you do to Gene Black. Here he is. Gene, this is General Eisenhower. Just... Gene, I'm delighted to hear your voice. I heard you've been a little bit ill. Oh, I'm fine. Well, that's good. Say, uh, what I was just telling the president that I was, I was thought he had a devil of a good idea that he uh, proposed last night. And I even thought it was put the frosting on the cake when he said he's going to get you to head it up. Thank you very much. So, uh, I know how you handle these uh, damn things in the past, and I'm all for you. Thank you a lot. <laughs> Now, General, I'll be in touch with you as soon as you get back. You let me know. Thank you. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. Good night. As 1967 draws to a close, President Lyndon Johnson goes to Vietnam to see the troops. There's been a new constitution put in place, and a presidential election. President Thu has been elected. Our troops have been fighting back against the North Vietnamese. Reports from the Pentagon have been positive. And President Johnson has a half a million people, soldiers, there in Vietnam. But he keeps thinking we've, crawled, we've made the turn. But 1968 will prove to be a year of unparalleled upheaval. Just before 11 o'clock on the evening of the 22nd, the presidential party arrived at the air base in Karat, Thailand, home of the 388th Tactical Fighter Wing and principal takeoff point for the Air Force's F-105s, making daily combat runs over North Vietnam. After a four-hour rest, the president walked to the jet tarmac for a pre-dawn meeting with the pilots and crews on the ready line. I know that at this season of the year especially, I bring with me the love of your families and the affection of your friends who are thinking of you, who are all praying for your safekeeping every waking hour.
I bring with me also the gratitude of the nation that you serve so honorably and so loyally and so well. Through the use of air power, a mere handful of you men are pinning down several hundred thousand, more than a half a million, North Vietnamese. They are increasing the cost of infiltration. And air power is providing the mobility which meets and which matches the stealth of an enemy whose tactics are based on sudden hit-and-run tactics. Let no man in any other land misread the spirit of America. It is a spirit that is manifest in the steadfastness and the resolve of a nation that is holding firmly and faithfully to its course. So as I meet you and greet you this morning, I say on behalf of your families and your friends, on behalf of all the American people and our allies, God bless you. God keep you, every one of you, and we shall always be deeply in your debt. Thank you and good morning. over the Asian mainland, the president's next stop seemed almost inevitable. I wish I could have brought you something more than just myself. I wish I could have brought you some gift that would wrap up the care and the concern of your families and your loved ones. I wish I could have brought you, too, some sign that the struggle that you're in will soon be over. I can bring you the assurance of what you have fought to achieve. The enemy cannot win now in Vietnam. He can harass, he can terrorize, he can inflict casualties while taking far greater losses himself. But he just cannot win. There must have been times that you wished that this cup might pass from you, that it might have come in some other place at some other time or to some other generation. But it didn't. It came here, and it's with us now. You've taken it with courage that makes all of your countrymen proud of you. And I pray that you will be strengthened this Christmas Day in wartime by the love of your loved ones and your people, by the great confidence that you are inspiring in other people, and by your own great steadfast courage. Now may God bless you, and may God keep each of you. So, on December 23rd, for the second time in less than 14 months, the president had come to South Vietnam.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.